This is Upfront Tech. I'm Brian Edwards Teekert. Imagine that you are out to dinner with some friends Mm -hmm. and your phone buzzes. Mm -hmm. Then it buzzes again. Mm -hmm. Then faster. Mm -hmm. And when you finally give up your social graces to find out what's going on. I actually didn't even see the post initially. I just was seeing the reaction to it. You discover a small army of anonymous jerks threats and really disgusting comments has just dedicated themselves to destroying you and everyone they can find who's associated with you. And just seeing people um, talking about how they needed to basically burn me in effigy. That is exactly the situation that Zoe Quinn found herself in. Because I was coming to destroy video games, basically. At the outset of what's now called Gamergate, a campaign that threw a spotlight on the shady world of online abuse and that seemed to come into its own with the election of Donald Trump. Zoe Quinn is an independent game developer. Her new book is Crash Override, How Gamergate Nearly Destroyed My Life and How We Can Win the Fight Against Online Hate. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry to drag you through this, <laughs> but we have to do the exposition before we can get to the insights. Of course. Can you start the story? Um, this this was a campaign by an abusive ex. Yeah, um, I dated this guy on again, off again, mostly off again for about five months. Um, and when I had finally completely gotten away from uh, this abusive relationship for a little while, um, he decided when he couldn't, cont- I think when he couldn't control me himself anymore to more or less crowdsource his abuse. Um, and he created this extremely long weird manifesto of uh, half-truths and personal details and weird stuff he's just completely made up that he workshopped with a lot of people the same way you might workshop like a viral marketing campaign, except instead of like trying to sell something, it was trying to ruin my life. Um, And he posted it in the places that had reputations for going after women before, especially women in games, um, hoping that would go viral. And after a few of them took it down for even being so far over the line for them, um, it caught fire on anonymous message boards. And I actually didn't even see the post uh, initially. I just was seeing the reaction to it and the immediate like deluge of threats and really disgusting comments. and just seeing people um, talking about how they needed to basically burn me in effigy because I was coming to destroy video games, basically. So um, you're not the first person who's had a crazy ex write awful things about you. No. I think the big question is why there was an audience for this particular diatribe, like why it mobilized people. Well, the thing is... um, And this is something that I think a lot of people miss, is that it's not necessarily uh, specific to games so much as there was this, like, there has always been this background anti-anybody who's considered the other uh, sentiment online. And usually if you're... um, the further you get from looking like a 1950s sitcom dad, the more you're considered, like, different or other. And um, gaming especially had this... uh, problem with women who are developers and especially game developers who made experimental work like I don't make the Call of Duties or the Marios of the world I make games about feelings and farts and I do comedy and stuff about mental health and other uh, and other weird niche stuff like that so it's very easy for people to sort of see me as being different and then project all of this uh, internalized um hatred or fear or anxiety um, onto me and like attack me as a symbol of everything they were afraid of or of, um, you know, different people entering games and the internet or even just public life in general, because this is by no means a phenomenon limited to games. The part of your ex's polemic that seemed to catch fire in that community 
was a part that accused you of sleeping with a game reviewer. Yes, which uh, in order for that whole thing to have been true, I would have needed to like go back in time, um, sleep with a game reviewer to get him to write a review that never existed of my free game, and then erase any evidence that this had ever happened from the internet somehow to profit off of something you can't pay money for. Right. So the, the buttons it's pressing is um, she's not actually a successful mm -hmm. game developer. Um, she is using her witch-like lady powers uh, to create an ethical conflict of interest for a reviewer that is actually getting the uh, the getting her the fame that she didn't have the skills to get in her own. Right, which is uh, hilarious when you consider that I had already written for the outlet that this uh, the reviewer worked for, so clearly I needed the connections, um, and that uh, you know this. I, I'm not the person that would have committed the ethical violation in that case. I am not a games journalist and, and at, at all. So the fact that they were um, later trying to use a dog whistle of, oh, we just care about ethics and games journalism, um, and then didn't go after journalists. They just focused exclusively on women and people of color and people who stood up for people who were not straight, white, cisgendered men in the industry seems awfully suspicious, um, especially considering a lot of those folks were actually pushing for ethical reforms in our industry, whether it was like labor reform because the games and industry does have a lot of labor issues, um, or talking about the uncomfortable relationship that um, gun manufacturers have with certain video game developers. So it's like the people were actually doing that work about these ethical concerns, and they were also usually not straight, white, cisgendered men and were targeted by this uh, campaign that was pretending to be about something else. Like, it's remarkable how we didn't have the fake news term back then, but there was so much disinformation and smoke screening of what was actually going on to sort of make the abuse like seem palatable or like a, a shame, but you know, totally tangential to these supposedly legitimate concerns. So you know, it it was a way for people to gain this like false sense of legitimacy. And we saw a lot of early games press doing this like two sides. Well, one pe one group says it's about abuse, but another group says it's about ethics. So you know. Who can really tell what's going on here? And it's like, uh, I don't know, you could look at literally anything. So I think we've kind of set the table, but I, uh, we need to establish the stakes. Right. So what, what was the first thing you saw? What was the first indication this was happening? Uh, I started getting a lot of weird Twitter notifications. Um, like what? What did the first one say? Uh, the first one I can remember was somebody saying they carry a bottle of disinfectant in case they ever run into me at a conference um, and because I'm so nasty that they would want to sleep with me and didn't offer me a free review. Um, that's the first one I can remember. That I think that particular user went on a lot of different tangents that were along those lines. Um, I had a lot of people asking me for blowjobs right off the bat and being like, hey, you know, I'll, I've got a games blog, you know, you want a good review of one of your games and stuff like that. Um, and really, it just like it escalated so quickly, like overnight, people were changing my Wikipedia page to say my time of death was soon. Um, and when that got reverted, it would immediately change to like the date of my next scheduled public appearance. Um, people are already trying to find out where my father lived, where, you know, anybody that had any real or imagined connection to me might live. Um, talking about since, you know, my my best known game is uh, rooted in the fact that I have depression, um, what they could do to isolate me from anybody who's ever supported me and get me to kill myself. Wow. And that was like the first six hours. You started monitoring the chat rooms where this was being organized? Pretty much immediately, yeah. What were people telling themselves there about what they were doing? 
See, the, I think the thing that people usually miss with weird campaigns like this is people totally think they're the good guy. Um, it, there was a lot of uh, there was a, it, it's interesting. It was like a lot of people who did not seem to have any sense of community elsewhere that finally had like friends and something to do. It was just the thing to do together um, and find that sense of community in was finding and attacking people. Um, There's a lot of power tripping on like, okay, how can we be able to manipulate this person's life as much as possible from behind a a computer screen? Like, what can we game? What systems that the internet uses to function can we game here um, to cause the maximum amount of damage to her life? And a lot of people coordinating like these detective efforts of like, okay, well, we found this game developer that supported her. This is her, uh, their wife's information. We should contact her. And, like, here's the other family members. And who, which celebrity can we, like, bombard with tweets about this to get them to tweet about it? And, oh, let's make some videos to make and try to get that to go viral. Like, let's really burn her to the ground because, you know, this, like, I think they were they were really fixated on San Francisco being part of the problem. They're like, oh, this Bay Area cancer of these liberal SJW social justice warriors coming to ruin everything and bring censorship and try to make everything gay and bad. Like we got to just burn them in effigy and finally get them out of gaming. Um, and then that rapidly um, overlapped with what we're now calling the alt-right communities, like the men's rights activist groups that aren't actually into men's rights so much as they are to try to make it legal to hit women. Um, these uh, Stormfront got involved super quickly um, and a specific Breitbart. That's an actual Nazi website. Yes, that is, that's literal Nazis. Um, they got involved super quickly because people were trying to figure out if I was Jewish or not. Um, a lot of anti-trans groups because they were trying to figure out if I was trans or not. Um, like it was just whatever this giant anti-progressive or um, different person bias, like all these different communities founded on that, like were sort of working together Um against myself and a number of other people, uh, marginalized people in games. What was the worst thing that happened to you during that period? Oh, God. Um, probably just having to deal with um, the ex. Because, um, like, that's the thing. is like, as much as this, like, spun into this giant campaign that infected so many people and, you know, led to weird stuff happening with the alt-right, like, it's still, for me, rooted in domestic violence that I was trying to get away from. So the fact that I will never be able to get away from my ex-boyfriend now, um, like his stuff is out there forever. It's been three years and I still get threatened and stalked and harassed constantly. Um, and I probably always will be because I've met people who've been targeted by campaigns like this that have been going on for more than 10 years and their children are now being targeted. Like I, that's, that's the worst thing is I will never get him out of my life. And presumably... He knew exactly what genie he was letting out of the bottle. Yeah. Um, he, he actually posted a lot of screenshots of him workshopping it with friends to ensure the maximum potential damage. And he would say, like, oh, harassment is bad. But also, I think she slept with this person and this person. You should do this. You should edit these videos. Let me do this, like, little media tour with, like, Holocaust deniers and all these other nasty people and feed more information to them. Um, but then say harassment is bad just so, you know, to try to cover, cover myself there. Did you fear that the online threats would actually translate into physical violence? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I was getting sent pictures of the, uh, after they found out where, what my home address was, I was getting pictures of my address sent to me. Um, I was, people were talking about going and finding my dad. There was, there were people that have yelled at me in public that like it's, it has, you know, I have to be careful with what I even say uh, about this sort of thing, just because I am so hyper- uh, surveilled by these groups that if I can't, if I say anything that I can't 
back up paperwork wise and triplicate, um, then, you know, I might be getting myself into trouble or someone might make like another call to action against me saying that like I'm making stuff up or whatever. But like there have there have been offline confrontations. It's just I can't document that so easily. Speaking of Zoe Quinn, independent game developer, target of the now infamous Gamergate online harassment campaign, her new book is Crash Override. Um, so I guess like the first big question you, you, you kind of addressed, why do these people care? It's because they find some meaning in hatred. But you also talk in the book about there being an economy around this. Oh, absolutely. Um, there are financial incentives in the internet. Mm -hmm. for people to be abusive thugs? How do they work? So, I mean, look at Alex Jones. He's been doing this for God knows how long. You can, if you have a YouTube channel, uh, you can monetize that with ads. That's like, you know, kind of in flux right now because they're trying to figure out what to do with that. And they've ended up, I think, incidentally making it so that LGBTQ creators can't monetize. Um, Alex Jones, for uh, any listeners who don't know, is a radio celebrity turned internet celebrity who's basically a conspiracy monger. Yes. And a lot of these do run on conspiracy theories as well. Um, So you get these people that sort of are performatively doing this sort of two minutes hate conspiracy theory, weird stuff of like validating people who have like ignorant biases against certain groups or certain types of people um, or like misinformation or, you know, basically feeding into these uh, like the darkest parts of humanity. They're doing two minutes hates and saying, look at this person and how bad they are. Um, Also, please like, fave and subscribe. And also here's where you can buy a merch and here's where you can support me on these like platforms like Kickstarter or well Kickstarter actually has an abuse policy they've been decent um, like here's an Indiegogo for something here's a GoFundMe for whatever um, and you know support me monthly on Patreon so I can keep making this great content for you um, so like aside from ad revenue there's like this direct marketing that goes on and um, you know these people are constantly cranking out new content and looking for new targets and looking for new uh, quote unquote controversies and drama when a what might be considered drama is, hey, look, a trans person is alive and doing anything, standing around being a human. That's we we don't like those people. So let's like all talk about how terrible they are and try to like mess with them. So that raises the second question. Like you just rattled off a list of platforms like YouTube and Patreon and so forth. Um, how much responsibility do they accept for keeping abuse off their platforms? <laughs> Well, I mean, everybody has a terms of service agreement, right, that usually says we don't condone harassment. We will remove harassment. It's just what getting people to actually acknowledge any of this as harassment has uh, is an uphill battle, to say the least. What did that look like for you? Oh, God. Well, for example, um, to pick on WordPress, uh, that's where my ex's entire manifesto is still hosted to this day, three years later after all of this. And I... Um, you know, after I had gone through so much of this stuff and started an organization to help people who were in my situation, I was building connections with tech platforms to get assistance for people who would come to me for help and like be like, hey, um, chain me in your terms of service. Tell me what you definitely want off your platform. If someone comes to me for help and I know that's something you want to take action on, uh, let me give me a contact so you can quickly remove it instead of going through this like backlogged, um, you know, like overburdened reporting system that's slow, right? Um, so I was trying to do this with WordPress. Um, and their their head of uh, policy or or someone in a position like that I forget, um, while I was like trying to establish this escalation channel, I was like, yeah. So you know, my ex's blog is still hosted like with you guys, right? He's like, yeah. It's a real shame about that. Like you know, it doesn't really violate any of our policies. It, like it, you know, we have we have a pretty 
you know, staunch free speech thing going on and, you know, it's not like harassment. I'm like, actually, there's like a criminal case for harassment pending in Massachusetts against him. Like, that's like the state of Massachusetts completely disagrees with you. And he's like, oh, well, I don't know. (laughs) And it just kind of got left at that. And I had to just kind of smile and take that because I needed that contact to help other people. But that, I mean, that is a common argument among internet platforms is that they don't want to start playing the role of censor. Oh, but they they do. Because uh, look at what happens if you upload anything that's an IP infringement or look at spam. Like we've had all of these conversations already about spam in the 1990s because people would be like, oh, I have a, a free speech right to advertise my product however I see fit. I'm not breaking any laws. I'm not doing anything wrong. And that is like far more actually protected speech than something like a death threat. And then eventually like it was this long argument and what ended up happening is platforms are like, okay, well, we are not the government. We can't actually censor you. So, Meaning that, if they censor you, it's not a First Amendment violation. Exactly. But we do still care about free speech. But the thing is, spam is impeding the intended function of this platform and making the experience poorer for everybody and is a quality issue. So we're going to regulate it. And now spam, uh, like anti-spam stuff is a billion dollar industry. So I, and that's honestly the, the attitude I take with this. Is but like, there's no sp- pro-spam lobby like standing up, waving <laughs> the victim card right. and saying the titans of Silicon Valley um, are cracking down on us because we're not politically correct Mm -hmm. yeah i mean they were they were back in the 90s like like that that was a whole thing way back in the day and that's that's the thing that's wild is like we don't we have our collective memory for internet culture is so short because there's so much that happens in the density of information and that is kind of wild and archiving becomes kind of a nightmare but we've been through this before (laughs) um and you know like Ultimately, that's what it comes down to me is like, hey, did you build this platform so that Nazis could harass like a bunch of people? Like, was that your intended use case? If no, then maybe there's a problem if that's happening en masse. And I mean, you know, to pick on Twitter here, the fact that they have a little thing in their back end that says um, more or less it's the is this account a Nazi account flag, um, then it's it's just show, it doesn't show that account in Germany or France because there's legal repercussions for that. But no, no further action is taken. And I've seen plenty of times where like a Nazi is telling somebody, oh, we're going to put you in an oven or whatever. And this, the person responds like back being like, F you. And then the person who said F you is suspended and not the not the Nazi for anything. So it's like if nothing else, like if you're going to have terms of service that are anti-harassment, actually enforce them um, and or like say we're not doing that like we're not we actually don't care about this this is not a thing we're touching it's this this like half measure bs about pretending to care that is the thing that really drives me nuts right um is that like a question do you think of the culture of the companies or kind of the economic imperatives tech companies make their money by automating things enforcement is a human task yeah i think it's i think it's definitely a combination of both because you know there's definitely a lot of good people working in these sort of broken inf- uh, broken systems that want to actually make their platforms better. But if you go high enough up in the chain of command, usually someone sucks or is like too risk averse to do anything. Um, and there is definitely this like large vein of people who are very isolated, who aren't usually people targeted by harassment that, you know, can not think about it and push it off as someone else's problem um, that I think it's very easy to ignore and not empathize with fully. Um, But that aside, yeah, it's like at the end of the day, the internet runs fundamentally on an economy of attention. And it doesn't matter if that is attention paid to something that is like 
a cool thing someone made, like a, like a, a good song or whatever, um, or a call to arms against like a person of color for having the audacity to exist. Because like at the end of the day, traffic is traffic, and making numbers goes uh, go up looks good to your shareholders. It looks it looks like growth, and it doesn't really you know you're going to be hard pressed to find people that are willing to cut into that growth um, for any reason, much less one that will get them yelled at. Um, so it's like that combined with the fact that there is definitely that another huge streak of being like, oh, we can just make algorithms solve all of our problems. And it's like that is absolutely not the case, um, especially when it comes to issues like harassment, because there's just some stuff that you cannot fully like you need context for. You do need to actually hire people to look at. And, you know, that was like something that was almost better handled uh, in early days of the Internet with Internet forums. They, there were always moderators deputized from the community that helped clean things up. And really what what I'd like to see is like some more resources being dedicated towards building these sort of community um, growth and basically tending the gardens that were growing in the first place instead of just throwing it all at advertisers and stuff like that. Like it needs to be prioritized more than it has been. So, you know, Facebook did an interesting uh, 180 degree turn on this in the run up to the 2016 election. They had been employing human editors for their trending story section that would appear in people's feeds. Um, they were not public about the fact that these were compiled by human editors. They got exposed. They said, fine, we'll automate it from now on. That's when fake news started taking off on the platform. Mm -hmm. And in the face of backlash over that, they're now hiring people by the thousands to start doing work that can't be automated. Do you think they've done enough? Um, I mean... It's hard to tell, right? Because it's not like the problem solved and it's sort of like how much of the damage has already been done. Um, because like there is this, it, it's it's almost sad that, you know, back, back, I keep going, you know, back in the 90s, but like when the internet was new, it was like kind of a joke of like, oh, you read it on the internet, so it must be true. But it seems like the general populace now that it's like everybody's online more or less, or feels like that. Um, like has lost that sense of skepticism or curiosity and will just, you know, it's it's like on us just as much to like not just blindly uh, believe any sensational thing we see and to actually spend two seconds to like look past the headline and see like, okay, what is the actual source on this? What's actually going on? Because like it's the age of information now and, you know, you can't just blindly accept every single thing that floats your way across like because of this whole economy of tension thing. It's like, it doesn't when quality is just seen as something that has been looked at a lot that doesn't actually tend to factor in you know is this accurate is this a good source is this what what is the actual quality here outside of it's you're turning it into like a popularity contest and there's plenty of there's entire groups dedicated towards gaming that system that you know normal people don't even know about right like any automated system is subject to being gamed yes as soon as you can figure out what the rules are you can game the rules. Yes. Um, it also seems like in the attention economy, a platform like Facebook is built to promote things based on the emotional reaction and the attention they get, not any fact value their assertions have. Absolutely. And often factless things that pander to confirmation bias are going to do much better by those metrics. Yep. 
doesn't the accountability have to go a little bit further than, you know, it's on us to be more critical consumers? Oh, no, I completely agree. It's just, I guess, after a couple of years of trying to work with companies to get them to accept that accountability, I'm a little bit tired and burnt out of hearing the same excuses. Um, and one thing that, you know, I want to impress upon people that we can do, that we don't have to wait for companies to like actually suddenly magically care is that we can, you know, take a lot of this stuff on to ourselves because it's not like there's almost no motivation for them to start actually doing this stuff. Like there's no financial incentives. There's very little thing as other than people need to start holding the companies accountable as well. Um, and like really taking an interest in seeing the Internet be better and being noisy and obnoxious about it. Should they be regulated on that front? Um, I believe there's, I would like to see more um, pushes into looking at consumer safety protections when it comes to tech platforms, especially as it concerns privacy um, and how your data is collected and shared and used and distributed. Because, I mean, just look at what that Equifax breach uh, did to everybody. And there's entire companies that can buy and sell stuff like your home address, your phone number. Um, without your knowledge or consent and then make it impossible for you to opt out or remove that information from their databases. And that's completely unregulated right now. And, you know, that's a frustrating thing when people look at cases of online abuse. They're usually like, oh, anonymity is the problem. We need to like, if we unmask the people responsible for bad things, things will be better. It's like, no, it's actually, there's a gigantic lack of privacy issue here. You know, privacy from like private corporations and private citizens that we need to actually take seriously and move away from this like opt-out model with our information and move more into an opt-in type of situation where you have more control over what's being bought and sold about you. I guess the, the other like kind of big area I wanted to get into is how the laws we have interface with this kind of abuse. So someone makes a credible threat of violence against you. That's the legal definition of assault, mm -hmm. right? In theory, you can take that to court. Mm -hmm. What happens when that happens online and you try to take it to court? Well, the first thing you have uh, to deal with is, do you even know who did it? Like, do you know the person? Do you know where they're located? Do you have their legal name? Do you have their address? Otherwise, like, what are the cops going to do? People are not going to actually investigate this stuff. And then it's like jurisdictionally, uh, are they even in the same country as you? Cause this could happen from across the globe and there's little you can do. You know, like, it's, it's very hard to actually get anything done on that front. So above and beyond that, um, the amount of personal information that you have to put about yourself into a police report is something that will then be public and you have to be willing to, you, A, you have to know that and B, you have to like be willing to sign up for a probably years long legal battle where you're going to be the target of all of these free speech absolutists that are on this, that are like in dangerous fringe groups while you're unable to say anything because you have to be a quote unquote good victim for the state. And again, like all of this is assuming that, you know, you're what the legal system looks at as a good victim and are not, you know, any of the members of the demographics that are at risk for higher instances of abuse in the first place from both the police and from the world in, at large. So it's like if, you know, people of color in the U.S. face a lot of threats of violence from cops and then they also are uh, at higher risk for threats of violence online. So why would you use cops to solve that problem? You know what I mean? And you know, zooming out from that entirely, uh, I don't know that putting people in prison is going to do much to dissuade online abuse the same way. I don't think it's dissuaded people to, to like, stop raping people. I don't think it's going to 
make the culture shift that we need, though I can see people being hungry for that sense of legitimacy that would come from a prosecution. But I don't know that putting someone in jail over a death threat that happened online would really do much to change anything. And the speed at which that would take to even convict is like a lifetime in internet speed anyway. Right. But there's things short of a prosecution, like a restraining order. You tried to get one against (laughs) your ex. How'd that work out? Well, so and that was a case where it's like, yeah, I'm I'm someone the cops aren't going to try to shoot at and someone that, you know, can navigate the system. I got this restraining order after like presenting a huge stack of evidence to the cops and it took me a long time to even figure out how to get the restraining order because of those jurisdictional issues and it required me to go back to where I was unable to be at. Like since they had found out my address in Boston, I basically had to go in secret to file a police report in Boston and stay hidden the whole time and not go back to my home address because people were talking about putting dead animals in my mailbox and looking for me. And then the judge looked over my stack of evidence and was like, I'm not really sure what to do for you here. Like, can you tell me what what would help? And I thought he would translate what I needed into some legally solid uh, verbiage. And I'm like, oh, I just I need my ex to stop giving personal information about me to the mob and inciting people to go after me. And he almost wrote verbatim that, which is not really good legalities whatsoever because I'm, I'm just like some game developer. I don't know what I'm doing. So that became a long protracted legal battle. And every time my ex offended, which was like pretty much immediately, I would have to go back, file more reports, stay hidden, uh, go through a show cause hearing, listen to the defense that he crowdfunded from alt-right groups, talk about how, you know, I totally had it coming, but also it didn't happen anyway. And, you know, a magistrate after like I don't even know how many hearings it took to just even get heard on the issue of criminal harassment on the initial attack, to which, like, it seriously took, I think, like, over seven months to even get to that point of multiple hearings. The magistrate said, well, I don't really uh, understand this whole Internet thing, but if this is what it's like, you should just go offline. And I'm like, Your Honor, I'm an independent game developer. There's no offline version of what I I do. You're essentially asking me to give up my career. And he said, you're a smart young kid. Find a new career. And then I had relocated to Seattle because it was clear, like, the threats were not slowing down after months and months and months. And I needed to move somewhere. I needed to live somewhere instead of just couch surfing with friends. And they had cyber stalking built into their uh, restraining order for, for that state. So I'm like, oh, I'll file it here since I live here now. And I'm tired of flying back to Boston. And I just I want him out of my life. And I'm, if nothing else, like going through the restraining order process, I was in the same room with him constantly, which is the exact opposite of the thing that I needed. And Seattle said, well, you know, you have a good case. I, I, I believe everything that happened to you, but you have to wait for him to violently reoffend while you're in the state in order for us to do this. And I'm like, well, that's kind of what I'm trying to prevent. And after that, I just kind of gave up because like it was another, I think, two years of fighting over the initial restraining order because my ex filed an appeal on it that he crowdfunded from alt-right groups. But it was like years and years of this. So when the DA was like, okay, now that all of that legal stuff is cleared up, let's let's pursue criminal harassment charges for the original thing. I'm like, please don't actually, because there any way that we can pull out of this, I can't sign up for another several years of this. You know, I, I've been fighting this better on my own. I'm better at taking care of myself. I need to be able to talk and I'm not able to talk about anything that that happened regarding him while, while there's charges pending because the defense uses it against you. And you know, at this point, I was watching the domestic violence origins of Gamergate just get completely washed out because I couldn't talk about it and other people weren't looking too deeply. And that scared me because I had seen so many other domestic violence survivors go through similar things. And it's such an important 
piece of my story and such an important piece of looking at online abuse. And like eventually she, the, the d- district attorney agreed and, you know, I'm like, okay, thank God I'm finally free from this. And that took years of having to deal with him. A lot of your energy since then has gone into organizing people to respond to online harassment and abuse without going through the government. Yeah. How does that work? What's working for you? Community and grassroots supports is actually amazing because, like, we can react faster uh, than any any institution can, really. And while I like to take all of the things I learned from working on the front lines to try to inform policy with uh, with institutional bodies, and that's super helpful. It's like what seems to help the most is someone being able to have someone to talk to when they're in crisis that can give them small, defina- like easily recognizable tasks that they can do to sort of regain some control over their life, mm. to know that they're not alone. Um, you know, we did a lot of psychological first aid training, which is usually what they teach people to do for like first responders to disasters. And a lot of it's applicable uh, in terms of like how to practice reflective listening and how to be like, okay, let's lock down your accounts first and foremost. Let's walk you through this. I'm here. We've got this. All right, let's remove private information from these third-party information brokers um, if they they haven't found it yet. Like, let's analyze what's going on here. Let's ask you what you want to have happen and, and really centering their needs because each case of online abuse is different. Each person who is targeted by it is different and they might want different things. So there's like no one size fits all thing. And the last thing I would want to do is create something that ends up being uh, able to be used to hurt someone else. So it's all of this like self-defense, um, privacy and security focus thing instead of like, oh, let's find out who did this and like get them. Um, so it's like, figuring out how to secure information, figuring out how to secure accounts, walking through, you know, what options are and what the likely or possible outcomes are of those are and just be like, is, you know, is that in line with, is that something you would like to pursue? If so, um, let's walk you through it. If you want to pursue like s- civil charges or whatever, let's see if I, I can find you a lawyer. If you want to report or even just document all this harassment, because that's the thing is like, being targeted, you just create so much busy work, like just even the documentation process that you would need if you hypothetically do want to one day go to the police. Like you have to make sure you have screenshots with like time and date stamps there. It's usually good to have an archive somewhere. It's like very rigorous work. And even just filing opt out requests for all of these like whitepages.com like sites, that's just drudgery and it takes time and it takes effort. So having someone there um, that can help share that load. So it's not just you, especially if you're um, being attacked by a mob of people, like the asymmetry of that can feel impossible because you've got God knows how many people trying to find every little crack in your life to exploit. And when you're just one person, that is so overwhelming. So having other people there with you that are like, you're not alone in this. Let's get you like, let's do what we can to strengthen your defenses and fight with you and, you know, not let you just do all this alone has been more helpful than any action I've seen like a tech platform take and or anything interfacing with the legal system whatsoever. And it's something that we don't have to wait on. And I mean, if nothing else, I feel like this election is really kind of hammered into um, a lot of people's heads that might have not been up to date on that uh, yet. But like nobody in power is going to come save you. You have to we have to take care of each other now. And we can't just sit around and waiting for someone else to do it for us. So when you say you, you don't go after abusers, does that specifically mean like you won't try to get abusive accounts shut down? On oh, platforms? no, no. It, like it finally reports like if that's what the person who is is being targeted wants, like we can mm-hmm. file reports like we'll we'll use those tools. Um, <laughs> it's, it's tricky, though, right? Um because one of the tools of online abusers is to accuse their victims 
of abuses or violations of terms of service or drown them in complaints about their activities. Right. So their accounts get shut down. Sure. But since we're people and not algorithms, we can uh-huh. look at, at this and say this is a TOS violation or this is not a TOS violation. You know, so we can't really be gamed in the way that an algorithm is. And I mean, people are free to report whatever they want. And I don't think any platforms actually re- respond to and the other thing is it's like one person filing a report. It's not thousands of people gaming the system to file a report on a single user to trigger to like trigger something in the back end. So it's not quite the same thing. Okay. Um, if you are someone who is not currently the subject of an online abuse campaign, what are the top three things you should be doing uh, to limit your exposure? Two-factor all of your accounts. That's when um, it's it'll be in like your security settings. And it's just like text me an additional code to log in because then if somebody does get your password, then they still can't get into your account. And it's Unless they also have your phone. And yes, exactly. Um, so that's like one of the biggest things. It's super easy to do. Uh, using password managers is great because then you can have unique, strong passwords for everything. And there's this little program that keeps track of all that that you only need to get into that's like hyper secure. So that would be one pass on Max or last pass on on everything else. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you don't even have to know your passwords, and it's really good to have, it's really easy to have good digital hygiene there. Um, reviewing privacy settings on all of your social media accounts and making sure that what's out there about you is like, A, you know what's out there about you, and B, that you're in control of that as much as possible. Um, and just like rigorously Google anything about yourself that you might have put online or might not have put online that you wouldn't want written in the sky, like, you know, your home address and stuff like that. Uh, and if it's at any of these locations, since you sort of have the master key to knowing what you don't want out there, and it's easier to figure out than you know people who are trying to find it and don't have you know that insider info of already knowing the answer. Um, go and just delete anything that you like. Basically, just do a checkup on okay, what what is out there about me right now? Um, what do I not want out there? Let me get rid of that now instead of like trying to turn a hose off when it's raining when worse things are coming to pass. I want to kind of circle back to the very beginning of your book. You opened describing your early love affair with the internet in a way that made me nostalgic for the online world (laughs) of 15 years ago. It was everything good that the internet could bring into your life as an alienated teenager in a town without a lot going on. Do you still feel a connection to that face of the internet? I do, actually. I I do. Um, I've never lost that. And that's one of the reasons that the whole go offline advice is so bad. It's like my support network is there. My friends are there. Um, I I still like I, there's so many, that's how I keep in touch with people that I, I care about. I've got friends that I've known and been very close with for over 10 years that I still have not met face to face. And, you know, I, <laughs> I actually recently um, met an online friend I had made post Gamergate uh, the first online friend that I, I've bothered to meet face-to-face post-Gamergate um, just last month. And it's this 23-year-old kid I was playing online games with. And the first time we talked, he's like, oh, we were playing a lot of matches together randomly. And he's just like, oh, you know, what you know, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I got to work on a game. He's like, oh, anything I would have heard of? And I'm like, oh, I don't really want to tell you because you might figure out who I am. And he's like, oh, that's fair. I was super polite about it. I'm like, oh, awesome. And we got to develop a real friendship over the next 10 months. And, you know, when he... It was just such a beautiful, pleasant surprise when we met and when he did find out who I am that it wasn't weird. It wasn't bad. It was just like it wasn't like the surprise, actually, because like when when uh, so many thousands of people have been responsible for sending you death threats, it's really scary to meet new people because it's like, oh, God, were you one of them? Sure. Um, 
and it just it was just being surprised by this this kid just being this like super lovely wonderful I, I call him my game son now and uh, I actually just got an email from him yesterday um, that like since meeting he's actually learning how to make games now and I'm like so proud of him and I'm so happy for that and that's that's like I don't know that I I, I love that the internet can still do that, even for someone who is like super polarizing online like me, and that I haven't lost that magic of just meeting people I would never have any connection to or b- probably ever be able to speak to uh, without it, and then having these deep and meaningful and rewarding relationships with them. Do you think that part of the internet is at risk of being drowned out? I do. Um, you know, I I would... Hate like so much of the the like common wisdom about online abuse centers putting all of the dealing with it off onto the person being affected, and really it's like that just means that we're kind of seeding the internet to the people who are willing to be the most hateful and the most loud and willing to drive them off, and it's like we all kind of have to step up and push back against that, even when it's not us in particular being targeted. And we have to say that that is not acceptable. We have to actually, you know, community isn't just a thing. It's a way that you treat people. And we need to start looking at the internet as like an important part of community that matters online and offline and to start curating that and taking care of each other and and preserving these spaces and saying that the kind of like the the hatred and the threats and the stuff that is so far over the line is unacceptable Um, like you have to kind of stand against that stuff actively otherwise people that are not willing to scream and yell and be terrible to each other are going to be driven off and they're going to be driven off quietly before you even notice it and that's like losing that would be devastating so the mantra um, from message board culture 20 years ago was don't feed the trolls when someone's being intentionally provocative, don't do them the favor of getting into a fight with them. Uh, you're taking the opposite approach. Stand yes. up to the trolls. Yes. Stand up to the concept of uh, abusing people, you know. And, and back back then, trolling was usually like being disingenuous. It wasn't threatening someone's life. Uh, so, like, we have to kind of draw a line between the two things. Like, it's not just, it's not the same internet it was back in the day. Like, it just, it isn't. We've we've got geopolitical, event, like, issues being decided on, on sites like Twitter. We can't, it's not like the same thing as just online forum culture 20 years ago was. So, you know, like, people talk about how, oh, you know, doing anything, acknowledging that, them at all is, like, enabling bad behavior. Uh, but... I think what enabling bad behavior looks like is permitting it to go on unchecked without any repercussions whatsoever and without being challenged. We need to set better community standards. We need to say this. We we need to draw a line and say this is just ideologically not okay. So Zoe Quinn, if someone who's listening wants help from your organization for dealing with online abuse or would like to assist in your efforts to confront online abuse, how do they get in touch without tripping your creep alarms? (laughs) Well, I have a... the crisis hotline component is down while I work with other groups who've been doing crisis work and hotline work forever because I'm still a game developer. I'm not, you know, I'm a grassroots person. I want to figure out how to make this stuff sustainable because it's too much for me to take on myself. But I have a ton of resources available at crashoveridenetwork.com that are self-service that are free and easy to use, including interactive walkthroughs on how to lock your accounts down and how to how to get secure that's the best thing I can possibly point people to right now. And there's like a ton of other organizations doing really good work in that vein, like Feminist Frequency and the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, specifically focusing on revenge porn and non-consensual intimate imagery and how to remove and deal with that. They have a really good hotline for dealing with that. 
and yeah, there's just, there's a lot of other uh, hotlines doing really good work in that vein as well. All right. We will link to your website from our website, kpfa.org, and then we will close the comments thread. <laughs> Zoe, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Zoe Quinn is an independent game developer. She was target of the now infamous Gamergate online harassment campaign. Her new book is Crash Override, How Gamergate Nearly Destroyed My Life and How We Can Win the Fight Against Online Hate. That was episode three of our newest project at KPFA, Upfront Tech. If you like what you're hearing, help us out. Rate and review Upfront Tech in whatever app you use to listen. It really helps us get the word out. Upfront Tech is produced and hosted by me, Brian edwards Teaker, with help from Lucy Kang. We're shooting to put up a new episode every Friday. Yep, we missed some. There were wildfires in Northern California. But most of the time, that means you're going to hear interviews here before they ever go on the air. And you're going to hear them in longer form here because podcast means no clock. That is the beauty of the digital world. If you just found this and you like it, especially if you live in the Bay Area, you might like the daily show that we produce at KPFA. It's called Upfront. No tech. We're on live weekday mornings from 7 to 9 a.m. Pacific time at kpfa.org or over the FM airwaves at 94.1. We also always love to hear what you think. Send email to upfront at kpfa.org.